Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 17 of the Good People, Bad Intentions podcast. And today is my guest. I have Wayne Gordon. He is a boxing coach at the Citadel Boxing Club in Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia. In combination with his father, Taylor, the Gordon name has been synonymous with boxing, especially in Nova Scotia. And I am really excited to have him as a guest as he is also a former Olympian of the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Games. He's also a professional. He was a former professional boxer under Angelo Dundee, the trainer of the late and great Muhammad Ali, as well as other fighters like Sugar Ray Leonard, etc. So I'm really looking forward to having him on the podcast. And without further ado, here's Wayne Gordon. Hello, Wayne. Welcome to Good People, Bad Intentions. I really appreciate you coming on, giving some of your time. Um, no problem. Whenever, whenever uh, we think about uh, boxing in Nova Scotia, the Gordon name is pretty well synonymous with quite a few uh, fighters. Um, your father, uh, Taylor Gordon, um, was a huge part of the sport. Um, and I, and of course, you're you're extending the legacy and and continue with Citadel Boxing. I really appreciate you coming on and 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 having a talk. Oh, I'm glad to be here. And uh, any, anything I can do to help promote the sport of bo amateur boxing, like I'm there for it. Awesome. And uh, a, a couple of things that I want to cover with this with this episode is uh, obviously your your own personal story with boxing. Um, but a couple of things I want to touch off the surface is that uh, you guys have a uh, an amateur card coming up April second, the brawl for it all in Spryfield. Yes. Um, and I know, I know the the main event, Justin Chambers, the fighting barber, is going against uh, Jay Rodriguez. He's somebody that trains with me in Tribal. Can you can you talk a little bit about Justin? Uh, because you know it's not very common that a that a barber goes into the ring and you know he's showing a lot of progress and development as a fighter. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with Justin? Justin is a, he came in the gym. He's a, he's a relatively quiet guy. He's more reserved. Uh, in the last year that he's been boxing, he's really come into himself. He's he's uh, more outspoken now. He's always been a hard trainer. He's always worked really hard. He's always trying to learn. And uh, he's actually one of the people that you look forward to seeing in the gym. He's not one of those guys you have to tell that you have to work harder. You have to do this, do that. He's always asking, what can I do better? How to improve? He's a coach's dream kind of thing. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's a, a really important characteristics that he has already. Um, and I'm just curious when when you were kind of working with him at the beginning, was there, um, you know, any anything from his barbering maybe that practice that he that he uses? Like I was I was joking with Jay. I said, is he gonna put him in the corner and say, I'm gonna cut your hair? You know, in the ring. Is he able to? Because uh, you know, barbers are detail orientated. I, I'd imagine you know doing doing that is is he into the details when it comes to boxing definitely definitely he's always he's always asking questions about how to improve his is what he's doing and he's looking for the little things and i guess that definitely comes from his trade about being a perfectionist uh cutting hair so he's mm -hmm. sort of bringing that back into his training regiment for for boxing like i said i don't he's the type of guy that comes in the gym i don't have to tell him to train harder 
And, and the other thing is he's asking how can he improve? Every day it's the same thing. And like I said, so it's nice having people like that in the gym. You don't have to tell them to train harder and they want to learn. Okay. And I'm looking at some of the other fights. Somebody that I know uh, towards the under, under part of the card, Jesse Saban, trained with him, uh, District 34. Uh, any fights that, that the fight fans should be looking forward to uh, come, come April 2nd? Well, it's a mixture of, of kids that we have trying to develop our program. My program is just not around what happens in Nova Scotia. I sort of, uh, uh, whatever funds I'm able to raise, I put towards my program of, of developing kids for the next stage up. An example would be that prior to this show, I'm uh, this fight card on the 23rd of March, I'm traveling to Mexico City with one of my fighters yeah. to fight there. Sierra's Tuesday day. And that's mainly because we, there's no one in Canada to fight her. And uh, she's, she's fought in Ireland like five different tournaments, winning them all. And uh, she's fought in Kansas City, won the world championships in Kansas City. She's fought out in BC, uh, you name it, Atlanta, Hawaii, uh, anywhere we can get really good competition for it. And, and Mexico will be the first time going there with her. So we're really excited for that new type of exposure. But the kids on this undercard, uh, some of these kids on this undercard, I'm looking for the same thing, give them the same opportunity of generating that experience so that when they get to the next level, not only are they going to be able to compete at that, but I want them to be able to win at the next level. So they have to be prepared for it in advance. And Sierra is somebody we had on not too long ago. Really, really bright girl. I think she's going to do really well in this sport. Um, all around uh, champion you know, has, has kind of had the taste of, of being on television and obviously like a lot of different international tournaments. And, um, and yeah, like, like you were saying about developing athletes, she, one thing that she brought up was that the last few nationals have been canceled and she really hasn't been able to, to test herself in the local circuit as far as getting those, those placement stuff. So, so come 2022, like, is uh is her main focus that she's going to be uh trying to get her her name into the the to the the olympic picture well in my mind you have to plan ahead similar to for sierra we've been we've been working for eight years trying to get her actually more than eight years trying to get her ready for the 2028 olympic games and this covid bullshit that happened and the lack of direction and that boxing canada's doing is setting our fighters up total for failure mm -hmm. uh in the last I know the last, I don't know, three Olympic Games or four Olympic Games for Canada for the men in itself. I think we only had four fighters go. And, and I think that what is happening is that what they're doing to prepare athletes to compete and win at this level is not working. In the last two years, we've been shut down because of what's going on with COVID in Canada. But the rest of the world have continued to work through it. And their boxers have been traveling and, and, and preparing where our boxers have been sitting at home not even training at the National Training Center, which they have new coaches there that are just trying to gain experience at the expense of our fighters. And um, I'm, I'm hugely disappointed, but that doesn't stop me from preparing my athletes to compete and win at that level. Sure. And, and what you were speaking on about kind of it being the, the detriment, I mean, so obviously you can um, improve at the gym. Um, but, but isn't it that, that you need to have those competitions and, and it's going to be to maybe to the detriment of our fighters going against, uh, people have had two years of, of fight experience. 
there, that, that is not time that we can get back easily. Mm-hmm. The time, two years of experience lose, lost is a huge gap that is insurmountable sometimes for some fighters. And when, when you look at our national team, they actually had a push-up and burpee contest to make the national team. I kid you not. Wow. And so they, they, didn't have, they didn't have the championships. They never had the fighters. They could have called the training camp. They could have called all the fighters to come in and compete amongst themselves, inspiring mm-hmm. to, develop, to determine. But they didn't do that. So looking at what they're doing now, and I know their national coach is a new person with no experience at this level as a coach, maybe as a competitor, but a, competitor, a successful competitor does not make a successful coach. If that's the case, guys like Sugar Ray Leonard would have multiple world champions, but they don't go into coaching because that's not their forte. And um, for us to be able to overcome that, you know, is it, hard. Even, even is affected Sierra. I mean, we have to be in, in situations that we're not comfortable in. And this is why Sierra travels the competition so that she's not, I mean, she doesn't get, she doesn't get hometown favoritism here. And in fact, it's the other way around here with the political field in amateur boxing, even in Nova Scotia. It's, it's not looked highly upon her because she's so successful. People high, hold her to a higher standard, which is not fair. And, um, so we have to travel to get competition and, and like this competition in Mexico, it's costing us a fair amount of money, but we look at this as an investment to give her the best chance of competing and succeeding and winning at the highest level. And I appreciate you shedding some light and some insight because I know that with bo- with boxing, there is a fair amount of politics involved, uh, whether it's, you know, with judges and decisions or whether it's with getting, uh, you know, the spots on this particular team or, or anything like that. So I really appreciate you providing some insight to uh, to the people listening, you know, because it's it's obviously not an easy thing. Everything that's been going through and and really, in my opinion, what, what who's really losing out is the fighters, you know, because they're they're putting their their lives, they're putting everything they they can into their career, hoping for you know going into the Olympics or maybe turning pro in the future. And uh, yeah, it's like you said, you know, two years have kind of been lost and. That's key for uh, development time. So thank you for touching on um, the April 2nd card and also kind of also touching on what I was going to ask about uh, Sierra's upcoming uh, uh, fights coming up in in Mexico. That's going to be awesome. The Mexican people uh, are amazing people for boxing. So I'm really looking forward. It's very exciting for us. Very exciting. I'm really looking forward to seeing her bring some hardware home. Um, So the next thing I want to talk about, obviously, is is your own personal story with boxing, and I think uh, the the main key, from my understanding, is, is your father Taylor and, and how he was kind of a, a pioneer for for boxing. He's originally from Saskatchewan, yeah, and then he moved down here and he was part of the Navy and he had won, I believe, um, a title for for the the armed forces. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, growing up, what it was like having a father with such a decorated amateur career and how that how that led to you getting involved with boxing and eventually getting into the Olympics? Um, yeah, that's a unique story. My dad came from a rural area of Saskatchewan called Melford, Saskatchewan. He belonged to a boxing club there, and he's very passionate with it. One of the, one of the um, former boxers joined the Navy, and, uh, and on his leave, he came back home, and he was telling my dad, uh, I said, look, Taylor, if you want to pursue a boxing career, you should join the Navy. And that was the reason why my dad joined the Navy, to pursue a boxing career. He became all forces champion, I think, 1955 and 54. 
And then he began coaching. At one time, he was coaching uh, and competing at the same time. So he'd put a show on. He'd help all the other fighters. Then he'd fight the main event himself. And then he traveled from uh, Saskatchewan to, to British Columbia. And then 1964 was his first Olympian. He coached the Olympic Games. Then in 68, he was selected for Olympic Games in, in Mexico. And then 72, in, in like, the, like 1970, in 6970, we were in Bermuda, where he coached the Bermudian team to the um, 1970 Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, Scotland. And then he went from there to here in Halifax, where he produced his first, Nova Scotia's first Olympic boxer from Nova Scotia, was Carl Morgan in 72, who lost in the quarterfinals to Germany for a bronze medal. And then moved on from there. But my involvement in boxing at the start was when I was six years old in Bermuda in 1969. My dad was putting on a, a, a boxing show during, I think it was called Cup Day, where they have a cricket match, they have a, uh, a marathon, and, and they actually put on a boxing match. And the co-promoter with the show had a son roughly my age. And um, it, it, my first time going to boxing was when I actually had my first fight. I was thrown into the ring with this other young, young guy. And... Um, Needless to say, it was a little bit more like a cockfight than a boxing match. The bell went ding. We went across the ring. We flailed at each other. And uh, I came out the winner. But, but then that excitement of being in front of a big crowd. And I, I definitely was the underdog because in Bermuda, when we went to school, I was only one of three white kids at the whole school. Uh, everybody else was black. And uh, so I learned how to fight just to survive. And I was fairly small. And I went from there, we moved to, to Nova Scotia. My dad helped form Boxing Nova Scotia. And then he helped form Boxing Canada, where boxing was really political back in the uh, late 60s and 70s, where really, it's not that Nova Scotia didn't have great fighters, but Nova Scotians were never given the opportunity of competing for tournaments like the World Championships or Olympic Games. And my dad, when he moved here, he had been across Canada, had his first Olympic in 64 in BC, so this isn't fair. So they helped form the Association of Box Canada where everybody had an uh, equal say and where everybody was fed, fed the same amount of information and that gave our athletes a better opportunity. Uh, hey, I, I didn't know that uh, your father had a hand in bringing in uh, Boxing Nova Scotia and Boxing Canada. So I'm really, I'm really honored to, again, to have, have his son on here talking about boxing because um uh, your your father uh, is in the the sports hall of fame you know again i i can't i understand he's no longer with us and and i know that that must have been a very hard thing for your family and you but i'm really i'm really happy that you're continuing with boxing because uh yeah he's synonymous with with uh, boxing nova scotia and boxing canada i believe is it is it not true that he's had almost the most most years being coach for the national team? I would say in, in, the, in the late 70s, and I would say late 70s, they started doing what's called quadrennial planning. And that's a four-year plan where they plan, a, a, train a group of guys for four years and they plan it ahead. And so my father worked, he, he coached the 68 Olympic Games, but then he became a full-time national coach, I think around, around that time. And then from 80, in 1980, we boycotted Olympic Games, was the best fighter by far in Canada and, and in the world, ranked number two in the world for, for three years was Ricky Anderson, who's deprived the great opportunity of participating in the Olympic Games because the, the boycott that we did because of uh, Russia invading Afghanistan. And that deprived a whole generation of athletes, even though they're still considered Olympians, but 
it's a scar that's hard to 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 wear for for Ricky. And um, then the '84 Olympics was the first Olympic Games we won medals in 52 years from the Olympic Games. Previous Olympic Games was uh, in Los Angeles, 1932, when we won our last medal. It was a gold medal. I'm not familiar with the uh, athlete's name right now, unfortunately. And then 88, we won, or 84, we won, uh, Dale Walters from BC won our first medal. And then Sean O'Sullivan and Willie DeWitt won two silver medals. And then 88, we won three more medals. Um, Raymond Downey won the bronze medal, first Nova Scotia to win a medal. And then the silver medal was won by Edgar DeMarcus from Ontario and Lenny Lewis, obviously a great athlete all around, uh, winning the gold medal. And then in uh, 92, we won two medals. Uh, Mark Luke Duke won a silver medal. Chris Johnson won a bronze medal. Then 96, the last medal he won was my medal. Dave Defeatabaum won a silver medal. Hey. And that, that, that's my dad will sort of step back from the whole thing right after 92. But he still worked with the program, but then... He gave the rings total to me at about 1995. Okay. And what was it like? What was it like having um, that kind of be passed on you? Because I imagine there was a, a great deal of pressure, you know, growing up and everything like that, having a father who's that involved in the, in the sport and, and quite decorated himself. Uh, can you just speak about some of those earlier years and maybe how, uh, you know, some stuff, some lessons that he instilled that on you in a young age? Oh God, I, I I think that I survived despite my dad's coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was a really good coach. He was a better organizer. He had he always had his ducks in a row. He was very a- military, like A trait personality. I had everything organized, everything in a row. I am not the same way. I'm B trait. I'm so disorganized, but I I change with the I'm changed with the flow. I, I can I can adapt to situations a lot better. When growing up with my dad as my coach, I really his military thing came through and, and he was really hard on me. I, I ran every day pretty well, five days a week, no matter what the weather was like. Uh, I fought through injuries. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I was fighting guys that were adults that were top ranked in the world. And at that particular time, I wasn't beating them. And, and inspiring, I had sparring with Ricky Anderson, Don Downey, and they used to beat the crap out of me. And I used to say to dad, like, you know, these guys are taking advantage of me. Like, they guys kick the shit out of me. They said, you see what they're doing? Dad goes, yeah, they're making you better. And he was right. Um, it forced me to survive that I had to go through this process of, of attrition to become the athlete I turned out to be. And I was given many opportunities. I was given many opportunities uh, of competing where... Um, you had to be the best to compete at international levels. To box for our national team, you had to be champion. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, I try to put that philosophy into my coaching where that the opportunity of traveling, you don't have to be the best, but you have to be able to defend yourself. And then we can learn on top of that. Where when we're when I was a kid, there was no internet, no way of just go Googling something or looking and say, oh, this competition, let's go and bite ourselves. Uh, it was a lot harder then. Okay, I and I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, your father's military, like we, one of the first guests we had was Aubrey McLeod. I kind of talked a little bit about how his military experience might have translated into boxing. Of course, um, um, somebody that kind of inspired the whole post, uh, podcast and the idea, Customato, the the former mentor and trainer of of Mike Tyson, he attributed a lot of his knowledge of the mental aspects of boxing to 
um, like a field manual that he got while he's in his service. So I imagine that some of the the things that your father was was putting you through must have been on that same kind of note where, you know, trying to prepare you for for war type thing. Did you yeah, have that I, kind I, of vibe? Yeah, he was very organized. He knew what he wanted. He knew what the, the steps that I had to take, and um, and I'd be willing to do it. You, you, when and I, and I agree to to a lot of that because when you fight internationally, when I was boxing. You didn't know who you were fighting until they stepped in the ring. Mm-hmm. You knew what country they were from, but you didn't know their background, really, unless, unless like, like when I fought in Olympic Games, fought Mark Brill. Well, Christ, everybody knew who Mark Brill was. But some of these other tournaments where you fight in England or you fight in uh, Russia or you fight in Sweden, when they get in the ring, you're, you're, you're not really sure of their accolades unless someone tells you. Now you just can't research like you can now. Yeah, now you can just pull up on YouTube. Oh, okay. I could kind of see yeah, this so- person. And I mean, obviously people can change, but yeah, like the tool of YouTube, it it kind of changed the game, eh? Because uh as particularly for like the the single matches, like when you're when you're preparing for one opponent, you can kind of really have an understanding of what they are. Sometimes ignorant ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. Not knowing who you're competing against sometimes is an advantage because sometimes you watch somebody compete. And that doesn't mean they're going to compete the exact way against you because their competitor is different than you. So sometimes it's, it's, it's disadvantage. Unless, unless, again, you have a lot of experience and they have a lot of experience, then there'll be a lot of similar traits. But at the early stages, between probably 10 to 20 fights or 1 to 20 fights, the guys will change towards who they're boxing. So it's not really a big factor. And, and it really screws with your head a lot, too. Guys get, oh, look at this guy, look at this, look at that. Doesn't mean he's going to do that against you. Yeah. And, and sometimes too, like you can uh, get, get kind of fearful watching somebody if they, you know, had a really devastating uh, match against somebody, you're like, okay, he's going to put me on the ground or something like that. But he, she, they, them, whoever is going to put you on the ground. Um, But it doesn't mean it's the case if you're, you know, not a walking punching bag, like maybe one of their opponents. That's right. This is the things that, that what my dad definitely prepared me for. Our gym was very tough. And anybody that was in our gym can attest to that. That if you can walk out of our gym with your head up and said, man, I survived a training session, most fights were probably easier than our gym sometimes. Our gym was pretty pretty rough. And uh, the cream rose to the top. And then when you went to competition, this one gave us the advantage against most competitors. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's always, like, different philosophies about, about sparring and stuff. But certainly, like, having those hard spars um can really mimic the best you know what it's like to be in that competitive atmosphere and and really uh you know forge and and harden uh yourself and make yourself a better fighter um you kind of touched earlier about the 1984 uh los angeles um game um that you competed in and one one particular thing that when i was looking into um uh researching you before i had you as a guest i was reading an article from from 1984 uh a upi uh, sports writer rich toshis was talking about how you kind of had a really bad luck in that game uh because when you drew um you know a lot of people got buys um and then you actually got it went against the gold medalist as your first match um and can you kind of talk a little bit about that aspect of the Olympics and how, you know, some people kind of can luck and, and get better placements and, 
and other people like yourself have to go against the toughest of the competition first off? Uh, see, look, I, 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 it's not hard for me to remember the middle of a game. So I, I can just close my eyes and remember the whole thing, the whole fight. You know, I trained eight years of my life getting ready for Olympic Games. I remember being interviewed by reporter Steve McLeod in 1976 when I was um, 13 years old and asking me, and this was just around the Olympic Games uh, in, in Montreal where he was at talking to my dad about Chris Clark getting ready for Olympic Games. And, and dad said, well, you should interview my son, get his perspective on what he feels. And asked me that. I said, I was getting ready for the Olympic Games. I said, I, I'm, I'm training to win a medal in the 84 Olympics. He said, well, you're 13 years old. Like, how do you think this is going to go? How do you plan that far ahead? I said, well, I plan on, you know, winning a junior title, winning a youth title, then doing this as a senior, then make the Olympic Games. And I, I'm going to be ready for it. And during that time getting ready, I had broken bones. I had different operations. None, none of it actually done with happened because of... Uh, of competitive box, just being a kid, I had mononucleosis, I had infected spleen, all those things. And then I finally make the Olympic Games. I think like all this hard work, all these bad obstacles I've overcome, the adversity I suffered, the luck's going my way now. I'm going to get a good draw. I had prepared to fight Mark Greenland earlier in a competition called USA versus the World in Reno, Nevada, mm -hmm. where I was selected as a member of the Commonwealth Games team to compete against the American. And going, and then Greenland pulled out. Uh, just about two weeks prior to the show, about a month before, because of an injury, he was healing for his hand to prepare for the rest up for the Olympic Games. I fought Alton Rice, and going into my fight, the Commonwealth Games team had lost six fights in a row. And then I fought Alton Rice, the only guy that year to go the distance with Breland. I knocked him out in the second round. And then going to the Olympic Games, I think, like, man, this is my game. Now things are going to come to light. I'm going to get my just reward. So I was at the draw where most athletes aren't, weren't allowed to the draw, but I snuck into the draw. I'm sitting there and they're going over the weight class. They get to my weight class and they say, there's 37 guys in the weight class. 27 guys are going to get a buy. So that's like better than 75% chance I'm going to get a buy. I think like, sweet. Then it's, I'm going to get a buy. Then it's a 50-50 chance I'm going to be opposite side of the draw than the world champion. So that, so the odds, like, everything's going to go my way. They said the first 10 names come up will be fighting the next day. Or the two days after, two days after. And, and so the first two countries to come out was USA, Canada. I said, what the fuck? Like, did, I, I looked at my sheet to say, do I got the wrong weight class? Or like, I can't believe this happened. And, um, and then I said, fuck, I, I just can't believe it. And uh, so then my dad was there and he said, well, look, you got to beat him at some time. You might as well fight him when you're healthy and strong, no injuries the first day. And that was it. I remember calling my mom who was at the Olympic Games, but she wasn't at the venue at the time. And I, I called her and she was very anxious. Oh, how did the draw go? And, and who are you fighting? And I said, well, there's, and I said, I said, there's 27 guys away class, 27 guys, there's 37 guys away class, 27 guys got a buy. She said, oh, you got a buy. I said, no, I didn't get a buy. So who'd you draw? I said, I drew Mark Breland. The phone went dead. <laughs> she goes, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kidding. And then even before I got back into my, the part of the village where we were staying, I was interviewed by the media then asking me, I don't know how they knew who I was or right away, but right away they're asking me, oh, you drew Mark Freeland and, you know, what do you think about yourself fighting against the, the world champion, the number one pound for pound fighter? And, and I said, look, I trained eight years of my life for the Olympic Games. I came here to win. I'm going to fight my hardest. I'm going to try to win. And then they blew that up, of course. And they said, oh, the cocky Canadian predicting he's going to beat Freeland. But that's the American style of creating drama. But anyhow, 
I, you know, I, I use that as a motivation. I've been facing many obstacles and the adversity just made me stronger. And you, can you talk a little bit about that fight? Was it, was it competitive or was it hard going against the, the, the best? Uh, the hardest thing about that fight was the Venezuelan referee, uh, not enforcing the rules properly. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that's almost putting amateur boxing out of the Olympic Games is the corruption. And the way the referee, and I mean, the, the only way I was going to win this fight was by knockout. I knew that. I think that um, most people didn't give me the chance to the, of even going the distance. I think the consensus was they didn't even look at my name when they were going into the fight. Um, the referee that refereed my fight was the Venezuelan referee, and he refereed the first two days. I think he refereed this random, random, like the lotto. He refereed, I think, four of the first six Americans that fought, which is like, I mean, one of the six were night would have been easier. And... He, every time, if you watch the fight, every time the referee said break, you're supposed to take one step back and resume boxing. He pushed me to the other side of the ring. He backed me up, backed me up. Every time I hit him, he'd say stop and accuse me of hitting with the inside of my hand or doing something else. He totally broke up the flow of the fight. Uh, my goal, obviously, was not to go out and box with a guy that had a, a six-foot-six reach with his arms. Uh, I would never have been able to outbox him. He was two-time world champion. I had to outfight him. I had to, I had to knock him out to win. Uh, in the first round, uh, I fought really hard. I think I dictated the pace. Uh, he he bounced on the ring, used a flicky jab with no power on it. The second round, I became more aggressive, but the referee kept on calling me for, I'd be inside, he'd be holding me. I'd be fighting to get my hands free, and I'd be getting called for holding him. Like, what the fuck? I'm not holding him. He's holding me. And then at one time, in, in the second round, I think I threw three jabs and caught him with an overhand right. And... When I stepped in to try to finish him off, the referee actually grabbed a hold of me, which he's supposed to say stop. He's not supposed to grab a hold of me. Yet he, if you watch the video, he grabs a hold of me. He gives Mark Breel an A count. Then Mark survives the second round. And then knowing that I had to finish him off the third round, it, it was a lot harder. Um, the pressure uh, of the moment, I fought my hardest. I gave everything I had. Uh, the referee to ensure to ensure that real won the fight. He actually took a point away from me in the third round just to secure the win for him. And the rest is history. Uh, I think that the roles were reversed. If I was the American and he was the Canadian, the fight in the fight going the exact same way, I'd have won that decision. I'm not calling it a bad decision. I fought my hardest. I'm very happy with how I performed. Uh, I did the best I could do at that particular time. And like I said, the rest is history. So would you say from that experience going to even to now, did that kind of put into your mind that uh, when preparing your fighters or, you know, for your f- future pre- professional career, uh, did you, did you prepare them knowing that, you know, you're not, you're never going to have the home court advantage, you know, when you're fighting internationally and to, to maybe not put it in the judge's hands or, uh, you know, how, how did that, did that kind of shape your view about boxing at that time? Um, I think what shaped my view a, a little bit more was was the aspects of, of um, walking out the opening ceremonies. Uh, it, it's it's funny because the draw was one day, the next day was open ceremonies. Then the next day, like the draw was Friday, the opening ceremonies was Saturday, and I was fighting on Sunday. My 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 other coaches, not my father, said, "All right, you you got you got to fight the world champion on Sunday. You got to rest up on Saturday. Can't go in the opening ceremonies." I said. 
the fuck? Said, I'm going to the open ceremony. I trained eight years of my life for this. Then I'm going to the open ceremonies. And I did. And I think that motivated me more so um, of producing athletes to the Olympic level, given, given the thought of what, what a moving moment was to walk out the open ceremonies to be considered one of the best athletes on the globe at the same time. Um, it, it was very moving for me. And uh, uh, that really pushed me hard into being more knowledgeable in coaching and, and giving kids a better opportunity. And, and after watching what my father worked, what he had done about this training, planning for 48 years, preparing, it, it, it's not a fluke that somebody make, well, it is a fluke sometimes, but very rarely is it a fluke that somebody achieves the status of making the Olympic Games. It is planned out over years of planning. And, and you, you revise your plan. The path to get there is not a straight line. It's sometimes you have a few potholes, you have a couple of curves you have to go around. You have to plan for those things to happen. Then you have to reevaluate and redo things so that you're able to achieve your goal. Have you ever had any 13-year-olds that came to your gym or maybe even younger that had that plan like you had when you were, when you were younger, like you said, where you were talking, um, you know, about, you said you were 13 when you were talking to reporters when it was uh, the Chris Clark was, was yeah. fighting? Have yeah, you ever had did. any any 13-year-olds that had such a such a plan? Because that is amazing yep. that you had that, you know, that that dream and, and you pushed towards it and you had like all these short-term goals going towards the long term. Well, no, no kid comes in like that. When when I talk about what my plan was, my plan was devised by my father. Mm -hmm. My plan, my plan was devised by my father. It wasn't my own thinking that brought this okay. up. My dad had been planning see look. You know, you're this age. We're going to train the next eight years because it was it was unbelievable watching um, Chris Clark at the Olympic Games. It was like it was it was crazy, and it was so exciting watching. My brother was at the '72 Olympics in Munich, mm -hmm. and so the thought of that was was driven by me. And then the other kids that were in 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 the gym that were better than me, traveling and everything. And so when I started saying to Steve McLeod about what the plan to get there, it was already introduced to me by my father. So it wasn't my, my idea. I couldn't, as a certain, you know, I wasn't going to think that up myself. But I have, like, uh, the example would be Sierra Tuesday coming to the gym. She came in March uh, seven years ago when she was 10 years old. Her birthday is on the 22nd of March. So she's going to, so she was turning, this was the exact time she came to the gym. She was just turning 11 years old. And then she had such a unique quality about her. She was fearless. She wanted to aspire. She thought she was great and all this. It was my job then to put the plan ahead at a time. So after about a year, I started saying, this kid's really exceptional. This kid's fearless. This kid's got all this skill and she's coachable. And, and uh, so then I started saying, okay, after about a year, we started looking for competitions to make her better. So we went to Kansas City, went to Sweden, we went to Ireland. And then we started saying, man, you know, let's map this out better for another eight years. And that was two years ago we started doing this. And saying our best chance to make Olympic Games is in 2028. And between now and 2028, she has to win a junior title, which was deprived of her because of boxing Canada kept on canceling nationals, including this year. Now she's first year youth. And good thing that she's good at burpees because her on her burpee contest, she made the national team. I can't, I'm not, I'm not fucking with you. This is I the truth. I know, this is, it's so sad. I mean. So we, we planned this out for Sierra saying, okay, we have to get her mentally, physically, and technically ready mm -hmm. for the end goal. And 
if you don't plan ahead of time for this, and this is what Boxing Canada doesn't do. Boxing Canada goes every year, they do the same thing. They repeat the same mistakes, expecting a different result. It's insane. It is literally insane. I went to Boxing Canada five, six years ago, asking them for help with one of my athletes saying they'll be at the national team in like four years. I need these competitions. I need your support. And they said, no, they wouldn't support me. And then only one guy made the Olympic games in, in 2022 or 2021. That was the guy that came from my gym. Hmm. It's crazy. And I'm doing the same thing for Sierra, but I, but the problem is, is that the resources are, we need money to do it. Just being champion of, 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 of Nova Scotia is, is by walkover it means nothing. And even being champion of Canada, we have kids that win national titles by walkover. That don't, there's not enough competitors for them to compete against. So then if you win by walkover, going to a tournament with a guy that was 70 fights, and you only have six or 10 fights, you're going to get, you're going to lose for sure. So the goal is to get them not prepared technically, physically, and then with the experience to use that. At, a, at the next level. So we try to prepare them each time getting competitions. I'm like, uh, yesterday I was in contact with the president of, of uh, boxing Puerto Rico, thinking about bringing the team to Puerto Rico. Here I'm going to Mexico now, but I'm trying to plan my next competition, maybe in the in the fall with Puerto Rico. In the summer, I'm looking to go to England for the Herringate tournament in June. And then a week after that, there's the Wexford tournament in Ireland. So I'm planning, trying to plan these ahead. But then, it's harder with the restrictions that keep on coming in and going out. You know, it, in the last two years was was just a total loss. And and a lot of athletes not only did not progress, they regressed. I've actually seen some some uh, athletes, unfortunately, they they've stopped competing too altogether after this period because it's been yes. a very very hard time. Um, you know, and again, the the competitions just haven't been there. And and luckily, you know, restrictions are coming coming down so i'm hoping that we're you know able to to get some more regular activity because it's seeming like the days where you know you could have a fight every couple of weeks it's, it's seeming like those days are kind of over for a lot of athletes now because like there's people that have like like your father who had like 100 amateur bouts or you know i i don't know the total number of, of bouts that you had as an amateur but it seems like it's regressing as, as times go by that, that fighters can't get those opportunities anymore. No, you, you, you're, you're, you're totally correct. We are having guys, when I was competing at the nationals, even at the junior level, uh, I had over 30 fights. When I went to the Olympic games, I had over 130 fights. But you talk about guys with like Lemon Chico or, or Rigando from Cuba, they have 300. How do they get 300 fights? Because when we, we go to Puerto Rico, I took a group of kids down to Puerto Rico, I think, um, five years ago. Mm -hmm. And we went to a competition. The first competition, it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And there were three competitions in three different locations. Mm -hmm. And the first competition, they had, it was outside. They had kids lined up going in the ring, fights over, out in the ring, out in. There was like 30 fights. And then the next day, they fought somewhere else the same thing. They, they would get at least three fights a week. And we were wow. lucky to get one fight a month. If we get 10 fights in a year, we're doing good. But then that doesn't prepare us for what these Puerto Ricans are doing. They win, they lose, they hug each other. They get we went down there. It was funny because our guys made weight, all our weight classes. Then we're standing outside. There's outside. There's nothing. We went outside. And there's and it was fucking hot. And it was, the canopy was over. It's like 100 degrees out. This canopy was over the ring. We're standing outside. No chairs, no nothing. Pile of people there. 
And they said, all right, all boys uh, 14 years old, between 125 and 135, get in the ring. So they, then they point to one guy and say, you, and he comes forward. They point to another guy, you, come forward. Then they say to the coaches, is that a match? He goes, yeah, the coaches shake their hands, the other kids shake their hands, and then they leave the ring. I mean, there was no one asking about, they had to have a certain number of fights to be in that situation between 10 and 100. And I had one kid that was really good. His name was Julian Wilson. And, and when they brought him, and he was really experienced, really good fighter. They brought him forward. The guy that was boxing, was, and they're like 12 years old. The, the guy that was boxing him um, was like six inches shorter. Like his head, top of his head was to his chin. So when they, when they, the coach, me and the other coach agreed to the fight, they stepped forward, looked at each other like a stare down. The little guy from Puerto Rico goes like this, draws his thumb across his throat like he was going to kill him. And I said, oh, my God, the, the drama. Like, they had stare downs for the weigh-ins. It, it was so exciting. Wow. And, and, and like, in Puerto Rico, boxing is like their national sport. I mean, where, where's boxing on, on the list of sports for national sports for Canada? It's got to be at the bottom of the list. It, it's sad because uh, our kids are too coddled now. We, they're not – I mean, the hard right – I'm old school. Mm -hmm. I don't consider myself old, but I guess I am. But I'm old school. I, I want the kids to work hard. I want them to understand what adversity is. But then the parents will say, oh, you can't do that. Like, that's too hard. Like, you got to be careful. And, and it's, so it's harder as a coach now trying to, to understand what and what not you can do to have an athlete prepare for competition where they're going in at the highest level. They're, they're actually willing to do anything to win True. within the rules. It's it's you touched it right on the on the bat. You know, if you're going against people who are willing to do whatever it takes to win, and then on your half, you know that that isn't there. I mean, you're not really setting yourself up for success. So yeah, like you know, if, you, if when you're going against the world, you're going against all different backgrounds. I mean, there's people that are fighting through poverty. There's there's so many different conditions that you know boxers have to face and. And the truth of the matter is you have to be the alpha. You have to be like the predator sometimes and, and, you know, be hung more hungry than your opponent. And, and that all comes from that, that rigorous, you know, uh, difficult adversity and, and work that you were talking about. So totally a hundred percent. I'll give you a prime example, 1992. And I'm not sure it was the featherweight or the lightweight from Cuba. The B team guy stabbed the A team guy. So then the A team guy, cause he wanted to go to Olympic games. The A-team guy couldn't go because he was injured. The B-team guy got in trouble. He couldn't go. So the C-team guy went to the Olympic Games for Cuba, and he still won the gold medal. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you know, when, when, when you look at our national team, we have – if you look at what our national team has right now for champions on, on selected on their burpee contest, there's some weight classes. They don't even have athletes. So, so – it's, it's mind-blowing. Like, three years ago, no, four years ago, at our nationals, one of the weight classes for the women was an Olympic weight class. Mm -hmm. So you think that most people would be in that weight class because it's, it's, it's only there was only three Olympic weight classes at the time. The woman that won the weight class, she won it by walkover. There was only one person in that weight class. It just blows my mind. And I think that I think the, one of the biggest problems that we're having in the sport of amateur boxing for success and and for the numbers of people is the lack of leadership by our by our national association the lack of direction the lack of uh, transparency and then the lack of accountability if i were in a franchise in the major sports league and 
failed as many times as Fox and Candace failed, the GM would be fired. They redo, regroup the whole thing. But they haven't. They've not revamped. They've, they've just moved things around, and, and they don't have any transparency of what decisions they're making. And then there's no accountability for failing. And then the other thing is, is that they alienate the personal coaches of the athletes. It's, it's, it, it is like back when my dad was coaching, it was so much involvement of the personal coaches. Hey, you got this athlete here. Help, help me work with your fighter. We're a team working together. Now, all of a sudden, even in our own provincial association, when they hold training camps, they tell the personal coach, you cannot come to this training camp. This is a secret what we're doing. We don't want you to interfere. We work, we're going to work with your athlete one day every two months, but we can't, you can't see what we're doing. And then the athlete comes back to the personal coach, and, and then they go back to doing really what they normally do. Where's the team aspect saying, hey, let's all get together. Let's all work together. Let's develop our fighters. I appreciate what you're doing. Show me what motivates your fighter because they don't know what motivates the fighter. They don't know. They just assume they know. They go by the prototype what Russia does or what Cuba does because they have so many fighters to draw from. We, we don't. We have weight classes without fighters in it. So we have to nurture those fighters to help them gain their confidence, help gain their experience and help them learn to be better rather than saying, here's what we want to do and you have to do it our way. It's, we haven't got the number of people to do it that way. Yeah, I I hope that, that some of this stuff changes because it doesn't seem like it's going to make boxing any better um, in this country, in this province and, and everything like that. Um, I wanted to, to, to go back to the 1984 games for a moment um, because you had the, um, the privilege and, and the honor to also um, fight along a, um, amongst some of the, the greatest names uh, in, in boxing. And I'm just curious if you were able to talk with Pernell Whitaker, uh, if you were able to talk with Luis Ortiz, if you were able to talk with Evander Holyfield, Henry Tillman, Tyrell Biggs. I mean, when I was looking up the fighters that were in that games that you were a part of, I, I, I my eye, my jaw dropped. I mean, these are big names that you were, you know, not in your weight class, obviously, but like, you know, that were that were a part of the games. Um, yes, uh, I thought not. Not it's funny because I was not a big fan of Penel Whitaker. I said, man, mm -hmm. that guy will never make it as a pro. Man, was I wrong? He's like top fifty. Look, he was so amazing as a pro. He is an amateur boxer. He he, you couldn't hit him. He was just flashy. He did, but as a pro, like my God, he was amazing. Was I wrong there? But I had fought Frank Tate before, and and then when I fought on that first tournament where I talked about when I beat Alden Rice in USA versus World, um, Evander Holyfield was on that team, and I became friends with him. And he was at actually at the Pan Am Games. I first met him in nineteen eighty three in uh, Caracas, Venezuela, at the Pan Am Games. Mm -hmm. And when I drew Mark Breland in my first fight, Evander Holyfield and Frank Tate both came to my dressing room and wished me luck against Mark Breland. Oh, wow. And, uh, I, uh, uh, Evander Holyfield was at the 96 Olympic Games, um, and I, I talked to him there again. No, I'm sorry, he was in Barcelona in Spain. I talked to him in Barcelona, and then he was also in the Sydney, Australia. I coached both those teams for Canada. And, and he, I was talking to him again down in, in Sydney, Australia. And uh, so, yeah, these friendships, they remember me. I remember them. Obviously, easier for me to remember them because they, they achieved so much great uh, as, as professional fighters and were always in the, in the limelight. Uh, it was easy to remember them. 
uh, I was very flattered that Evander Holyfield remembered me. But uh, obviously, you know, being the guy that put uh, Mark Breland for set him up for an eight count in the second round, I think it was the only time he may have received an eight count. Uh, there's something to remember me by at the Olympic Games, I guess. And uh, no, that that's really beautiful that uh, they came to your to your uh, dressing room or whatnot. Wish you luck. I mean, that shows that you know it's beyond beyond nationalities or nations or whatnot. You know, if you can forge these friendships uh, in boxing, I mean, they can you know they they last for a long time. And and that's awesome that you're able to you know to meet those those amazing people that are you know etched into history. Like Holyfield, I mean, you know, one of the best uh, cruiserweights and, and one of the best heavyweights of all time. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'm looking at the weight class. He was, um, was he a, a heavyweight. light heavyweight? Yeah. So it's one crazy second. that he was able to get all the way up to where he was. I mean, he uh, he started off a lot lighter than what he ended off with. So, um, so um, I got a picture. I, I don't think you, you I don't think I'll be able to show it to you but I would definitely show the the audience uh, when this comes out um 1996 uh you and Muhammad Ali um can you just just like cuz I I do want to get into your um professional career um is it true that you you trained with uh Angelo Dundee correct okay um when I, I did not turn pro right after the 84 Olympics, I waited one year to make my decision um, what my long term was going to be. And uh, we had some people contact me after 84 Olympics got my strong performance against Mark Free on that, you know, like Emmanuel Stewart and a couple other people contacted my, my family to see if I was interested in boxing pro. And at that time, the answer was no, thank you. We're, we're so you know, weighing our options. And then a friend of mine who actually was in the six Olympics and was selected for the 80 Olympics was Ian Clyde from Montreal. Okay. Um, he said to my dad, look, if you want to box pro, and he boxed for Angela Dendy, you should contact Angela Dendy. He's a great person, a great trainer. And I heard that he's interested in your son. So my dad contacted Angelo, and Angelo said, yeah, you know, Taylor, um, I remember the Olympic Games, your son's performance against Mark Breland. And people said to me, um, wouldn't you like to have that kid, meaning Mark Breland? And Angelo said, no, man, I'd like to have that kid that fought him. And when that got to us, uh, we contacted Angelo. I think a week later, we flew to Miami. Uh, Angelo was an amazing... You will not find one person ever say anything negative about Angelo. And uh, Angelo welcomed me. I was into his family. I mean, when Angelo died, I was there with Muhammad Ali. I was there with all the other athletes that he had. Pinklin Thomas was athletes I didn't even know. His family, I was the only athlete that, the only former boxer, his family asked me to sit with the family during the funeral. My girlfriend, who's now my wife and the mother of my child, she was with me and my dad went down there as well. And we all sat with the family in a big reception afterwards where I was, we were invited to that as well. It was very moving. Angelo... Uh, when in 1996, I hadn't talked to Angelo in a few years. And my, my, my team was saying, oh, you know, Angelo, why don't you go talk to Muhammad Ali? And, and you have to understand, when Muhammad Ali was anywhere, he had security because he was like a beehive. When he mm -hmm. moved, there was like all these people swarming. You would never see him because there were so many people around him. So 
they goaded me into going over there because they almost made it sound like I didn't know them and stuff like that. So I walked over there and I sort of had the attitude, you know, walk by everybody. They're not going to question you. So I went to walk through the security and buddy puts his hand in my chest and says, where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going to go talk to Angelo Dundee. He's a friend of mine. He's yeah, like, like, right, buddy. I said, you tell him Wayne Gordon's here. So all of a sudden, he goes and whispers in Angela's ear, and amongst all the people, Angela's not very tall. It's like five foot two. And, and Angela throws his arm up, Wayne, Wayne, come in. So he comes in, he hugs me, and so I hadn't talked to him probably in about six or seven years. And brings me in, and he, said, he introduces Muhammad Ali, and tell, they start telling Muhammad Ali about me. And he said, look, that, that picture that was taken was actually taken by Angela, by Angela Dundee. Oh, wow. And it, it, it was very, Angela always spoke very highly of me. And and his wife Helen before she passed away. I had dinners at their house, and and even the the for the the role of coaching uh, Russell Crowe in, in the movie in two thousand and four. Uh, Angela, when my phone rang, I thought it was a prank. Some guy said, "Hey, Wayne, this is uh, Ron Howard, the movie producer. I don't know if you know who I am." I, and I'm thinking like, "Yeah, bullshit, but yeah." And he goes, uh, "You've been recommended to train our lead actor." Russell Crowe, and I, I'm thinking it's again, bullshit. And he said, he said, you've been recommended by Angela Dundee. And I think like, wow, this could be true. Like, I can't believe this. And then it was. And on, on just Angela Dundee's recommendation, I got a job trading Russell Crowe for a movie. So that's, that. Angela could have picked anybody in the world. He could have picked anybody. And he picked me. And that, I think that's one of the, the biggest things I'm sort of, proud of that that how highly angela thought of me i can i can say shit you know that that oh, angela lot thought i was his best fighter and and that's bullshit but you know i can say things because angela's not around now but this is true what i'm saying that hey i'm the only one to coach russell crowe and uh and I, I got the job by angela dundee and so obviously he spoke very thought very highly of me and you touched on something I want to talk about later, which is uh, Cinderella Man, because that was a, a big movie. Uh, Russell Crowe, big actor, you know, coming off. He was in his prime when that movie came out. I mean, Gladiator was only a few years earlier than that. And, you know, Russell Crowe, amazing guy. And I want to hear your experience with him. But what are some some takeaways about Angelo Dundee and his style? And has there been anything that that you know working with him that's kind of influenced your because obviously you got your father and his coaching style and can you can you kind of contrast it with angelo and, and talk a little bit about how it's formed you and and, and your boxing um knowledge now that that i think i'm very fortunate i've been my, even when my dad coached me he had other coaches coach me he mm-hmm. sent me different places. He didn't go in every competition with me. So he was knowledgeable enough to know that I needed other points of view, other aspects. And then then going from my dad, who was an HA personality, very strong-minded and very dogmatic how he did things, to Angelo Dundee, who was not that same. Angelo was more of a, a B-trait guy. He, he, Angelo was a much, really a good motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak anything negative about his technical aspects, but his positive thing of, above all else was his way he spoke to people. He didn't yell. He didn't raise his voice. He spoke very calmly. But when he spoke, people listened. Uh, he, and the other thing is that Angelo is a great storyteller as well. And I think I may have inherited that from him as well, being a bit of a storyteller. 
dragging the story on maybe to death. But anyhow, uh, I think being involved with Angelo, traveling with him, being a part of his entourage, and how people respected him in such a quiet way. He he got you know VIP passes here in there. Like everybody wanted to be around Angelo. Everybody wanted to listen to him because. He didn't speak very loudly, but he didn't have to because it was so quiet when he started talking. And I think that that aspect, um, being with him, his passion, his his, his drive, and, and the person he was, being a smaller person, and the, he, people just stepped around him and he walked his way. It was amazing. I, I'm I'm mesmerized. I, I really look up to Angelo Dundee. Hello, Cap. <laughs> I... Uh... I also like I had bought his. I hadn't finished the book uh, that he had written, but I I did I did get it, and I know that he had a very unconventional um, approach to boxing, but he also had an unconventional way about getting into it. I think it was, and maybe maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. I think it was his brother at the time that was Chris, that was Chris. Yes, his brother was uh, uh, managing some fighters, and and he was kind of in a period I think where he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do and everything like that. And that's kind of how he took the reins. Is that a, is that a correct? Uh, it's yes, been a while he, since I read that, the book. He ended up moving down to Miami and I think it's the fifth street gym. And he, he started learning. He mean, you know, the, not, it, it's funny that again, I mentioned earlier about fighters with great success doesn't, you know, ensure they're going to be great trainers. Very few fighters that, hit that stage of being close to great or being great have ever turned into being great coaches it's usually the the athletes that kind of get close there that turn into be the better coach because they analyze why did i not make it how i started thinking that mm -hmm. rather than the guys that are so successful they try to teach everybody to compete the way they were exactly and there's only one person like they were there's only one way to motivate them you know people are stimulated a certain way but each person reacts to stimuli differently and yet as a coach you have to figure out how to get inside everybody's head and get the best out of them and if they fail it's part of it's your fault not the coach that says hey jump and you say oh why and if you can't do it the way they want it you fail they blame you for doing it and and that doesn't work and angel wasn't like that angel was angel made you believe in the system that you wanted to do it because you believed in it and he and he had all the faith in you he made you think that you were invincible that you can do it and that he would have some inspirational words you know like like he said to sugar and leonard in his fight with tom harris like you're blowing it kid you're blowing it and, and then sugar run out knocked him out like the 15th round i think it was or the 14th i think it might have been 15th but i he still knocked him out on those inspirational words yeah and and those words i mean they might not they, <sighs> I don't know. I don't know if if you comment on this. Did he kind of establish like having him as as your coach, um, and and working working with him? Um, did you kind of did those words build an impact on your practice? Like, was he always talking to you when he was training? Was he always developing this a confidence or a rapport that that he drew on while you were fighting? What you know under him? He had an aura around him that that i don't like you want you wanted to please him mm -hmm. you know like i i was humbled by him and that the fact that he was coaching me is it, like it's like going to the gym i had to pinch myself say well how lucky am i hmm. but, but i was the type of athlete that you didn't have to tell me to do more 
you almost had to tell me to do less, but do it a better, different way. Hmm. And, and that's more or less what Angela was trying to do. Because I was always trying to do more. And he was trying to get me to do less, but do it better. And I think that was that was sort of the difference. That when my dad was push, 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 go harder, 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 go harder. Angela was like, no, no, you got to slow down a little bit. You got to see what's going on in front of you. After In amateur boxing, we have three rounds to do it. But in pro boxing, I didn't have a four-round fight. I started off with six rounds. And then when, after four fights, my fifth fight was an eight-round fight. And so I moved up relatively quickly. But the, you couldn't overcome the fact that I was missing the experience part. And, that, and, and then, because I couldn't figure out how, man, I'm exhausted after three rounds. Like, I, I, I'm exhausted. I can't imagine doing four. I never went to four. I went to six. And then going from there, I said, like, I don't know how I can do this. But it wasn't the physical part. It was the mental part. I, I think Angela really helped with that part. So um, when you became a pro in 85, were you directly under Angela from the beginning? Or yes. was Okay. Um, this was, uh, what, four years after the Trevor Burbick fight. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the morale that, you know, because cause Ali, the greatest of all time, um, towards the end of his career, he, he unfortunately had to take a lot of fights that didn't go in his favor. He didn't look the best. Um, was the morale at the time with, with the camp, like was, was it still positive or was there a little bit of feeling that, you know, those fights with Ali, it kind of brought down, you know, the camp? Um, I, I, when I trained in Miami, my main guy that I was training was Slobodan Catcher, and he was from Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. and he was the 1980 Olympic gold medalist. Um, the camp was very positive. I trained with Davey and Matthew Hilton as well. They came to our gym for sparring sometimes, and thank God it was only sometimes, because those guys were really trying to kill me. <laughs> I had to fight to survive to stay in the ring with those guys, so those guys were animals. Um, uh, but, uh, I, I remember Angelo telling me stories about Muhammad Ali, how generous he was. He had gone back to people that he had defeated in his past and given them money. And, 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 and Muhammad really felt responsible for a lot of people. He was so generous. And at one time, uh, some of the close people to Muhammad tried to get them to fire Angelo Dundee. And... Uh, Muhammad Ali called a meeting with all of the people and he had a huge entourage. He was taking care of a lot of people and, and they were only looking after themselves. They were never looking after Muhammad Ali. And, and, and Muhammad Ali pointed out to them and said, look, can you do what Angelo does? Can you do what Angelo does? Can you do? And then forever, whenever I fight, Angelo's in my corner and that's the end of the discussion or you guys will go. And then the, from that point on, no one said anything about getting rid of, um, of uh, Angelo. But Muhammad Ali fought longer in his career than he should have obviously everybody knows that but he did that because he was so generous he felt that he had to take care of more people and and provide for them he felt obligated these things at his own health and that's sad how but that happens to a lot of fighters they get involved with entourages and taking care of people and get taken advantage and, you know, most fighters, even, even you look back at, at, at Mike Tyson, they're compassionate people. People don't see that. They see the, the brutality that may happen in the ring. But that's, that's the image that they see. I mean, they don't see what goes into making a fighter. They don't see the background. He goes home to his wife, his child, or, or those things, or their family, their mom, dad. They don't know their background. They just see what happens in the ring, which is really not fair. That most fighters are very compassionate. And most fighters are very shy and reclusive. But then when they go in the ring... They, they, they get to show this other part that no one ever gets to see, only in front of the ring. It's that sort of an act. And uh, 
Muhammad Ali was very caring person, very, very generous, very generous. I'm glad you kind of spoke on that because that's exactly the phenomenon, if you will, that this podcast is inspired by, because as you said, you know, a lot of fighters, they have family, they have, you know, things outside of boxing um, and, and they're generally nice people. And then when they're in the ring, of course, you know, you gotta, gotta take care of business sometimes. And that's where the good people, bad intentions kind of comes from for the podcast name slash the brand name. And certainly Ali, you know, has, uh, he's become not only like a, a box, he's not only a boxer, he's like a public figure. He's, uh, he's for, for a lot of people, a beacon of hope. Um, you know, a lot of athletes are inspired by, by Muhammad Ali, not even just boxers. He kind of defied, um, for a lot of people, well, yeah, he kind of defied like uh, physics. He was, you know, fast. He was he was able to float. He was a bigger guy. You know, he was a heavyweight, but he was able to move. Um, you know, he had he, the he poetic. Revolutionized, he revolutionized boxing where Floyd Mayweather profited from it. He became the person that people wanted to see, not just for what he did in the ring, but for what he was doing outside the ring, how he spoke. His his presence was you know he didn't care really if you liked him or disliked as long as you bought tickets to see him fight so he would create this drama that other than that where did you see this happening he you say people were paying attention to him he came became a celebrity not just as a boxer but as a as an activist as a political and uh activist as well so um he, he revolutionized the sport of boxing where it was entertainment more so than the sport that's that's beautifully put. I totally 100% agree with what you said. Uh, what a legend. I'm glad we were able to touch on that. Now, um, what one last thing I kind of want to touch on before we we're, were for time, uh, working with Russell Crowe. I just last night watched uh, Cinderella Man. Probably this is like the third time I've watched it. And I noticed for the first time a particular corner man in the uh, – the film i i saw you i was like how did i miss this i didn't even so can you talk a little bit about you know that being in the actual film and then can you also talk a little bit about training russell crowe because we've seen all these celebrities that you know in their roles or whatnot you know like robert de niro raging bull sylvester stallone all these people from hollywood that get into boxing for for films what was it like working with russell crowe you know, was he pro was he professional? Did he did he have issues with training? Was he was he doing everything you told him? I was I was um, I don't know. I like the story is amazing in my mind. It's a great story. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the first day that I met Russell Crowe, um, I was staying at the Hyatt, I guess, I think it was, right next to the hotel, right next to the opera house, between the bridge and the opera house for the first few days. And Russell wanted to have a conversation, meet me before he started training. And uh, when I walked down the stairs of the lobby, we went to a restaurant. He said, mate, he said, look, when I saw you walk down the stairs, I thought you were walking on your arms because my legs are so skinny. So he broke the ice by being funny and being very sarcastic. So then he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send somebody to get you tomorrow for training. So me being who I am is a B-trade personality where I'm not organized. I have nothing. I'm, I'm there showing up at the gym with Russell Crowe. No paperwork, no nothing. I got a pair of shorts on, a T-shirt on, and that's it. 
And he goes to me, he goes, what do you want me to do? I'm like, holy fuck, what do I want him to do? <laughs> I, was, I, I, I was hiding my nervousness. I was very nervous. So I said, all right, Russell, I want you to skip for 10 minutes. So he started skipping. I'm thinking to myself, I got 10 minutes to come up with an idea what I'm going to do next. Because I had no idea. Because I didn't know what he used his expectation. I didn't know anything. And uh, so then after skipping for two minutes, which takes me 10 minutes skipping to break. So he was breaking the sweat at two minutes. He had lead feet. He was hitting the ground so hard. I thought he was going to give himself shin split skipping. So I said, Russell, I got to stop you for a second. He goes, okay, mate, what? I said, I know what I'm doing. You're not going to intimidate me. And I have fun doing it. He clapped his hands together. Okay, mate, let's do it. And after that, I had a ball. He was great to work with. We, he worked super hard. He listened to everything I said. Um, it, it, it was so much fun. And, and, I, and literally, I did have fun. I, I made fun of him. I joked. I can't help it, right? Like, and he got mad at me a couple of times. And I just flipped him the bird, you know, and say, you know, like, I can still beat you up. Like, and we had, we had a, a great time. I was only supposed to be down in Australia for one month. I ended up being down there three months. Then they hired me as a technical advisor to the to the movie. Then they gave me a part of the movie. I helped choreograph two different scenes. It was like it was it was crazy. It it, it really was crazy. When we were in Australia, I went up to his uh, up to his house in Coffs Harbor three different times. We drove one time. We took a private jet one time. We took a commercial airlines another time. Uh, he treated me amazingly, and uh, not that he didn't lose his shit on me a couple of times, but that's sort of. I deal with it, right? Um, what like he was in phenomenal shape for the for the film. And uh, can you talk a little bit about what kind of schedule he had? Was he also you know working with nutritionists and 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 doing weights and and that type of stuff? Or no, well, the the funny thing is is that when I got the call from Ron Howard about the movie, my marriage was a mess. I was I was looking out the window. I had a cast on my leg that had broken my leg playing softball. And when I got the call, when I got called, I started to train wrestling. So I didn't know I was training with them. So the very first day I went with them, I had to go running with them. And I just got a cast off my leg for a broken leg. And I still got out running them. Everybody's saying, oh, Russell, Russell's in great shape. He's been training. He quit smoking. He quit drinking. And, um, and I could outrun him with a broken leg. So I was doing pretty good. But and never at a time did he ever outrun. I used to run fast enough for him to run with me. And then at the end, I'd let him get a little bit ahead, but I always reel him in. I don't let it, I'm too competitive. I, I don't let anybody beat me. But but he would do everything I said and more. He he drops so much weight. He he has a, a chef that works for him. So dietitian, chef, like kind of the same thing. He always ate healthy. Um uh, the, the the thing is is that he's such a recognized person. When we used to go to train, we take a, a different car, we do different routes, so the paparazzi wouldn't follow us around. But every day he couldn't run. Some days we just walked. We walked for like two hours some days in Australia. Sydney, Australia is very hilly. So we walk around, but then he stops. So, man, I got to take a break. So we stop and have like a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. But he didn't have a smoke. So he didn't quit smoking, but he quit drinking. So he said to me after a couple of weeks, he said, look, Wayne, like, man, I can't keep up with you. So you're going to have to start smoking. I said, Russell? You start drinking again, I'll start smoking. So then every Saturday, every Friday night, I mean, every Friday night we went out drinking. So we started, I got him back drinking again. But anyway, I probably shouldn't even say in that. But we, yeah. we had a lot. And, and he would stop. Anybody who would ask him, hey, can I have your autograph? He'd give an autograph to anybody. 
that he didn't like getting his photos with people because people put their arm around him, he put their arm around him to take a picture. But the people would use that photo, say, I'm Russell's chauffeur, I'm Russell's maid, I'm Russell's this, and use that sort of to manipulate things. So he felt very uncomfortable getting pictures with people other than, and then even though I signed a contract saying I wouldn't ask him for a picture, I, I did. And, and, and here's, here's what a person he is, is that when I was down there in Australia in December, he said to me, he said, is your family, are you going home for Christmas? And I said, no. He said, your family come down here for Christmas? No, I said, no, I can't afford that. You know, I said, you know, in Australia, it's an expensive ticket. So I said, but my family understands the commitment I've given to this. It's only one Christmas. No, no, mate. That's not what it's about. He paid for my family to come down himself for them to spend Christmas with me. Wow. Yeah. And then on New Year's Eve, you know, when you see, always see the fireworks from the bridge in New Year's Eve, they always saw Australia first because they're the first one to have New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. The view of my apartment was overlooking, I was staying in a place called Wallamaloo, which is overlooking Russell's place, which is, is in, I was in Potts Point, he's in Wallamaloo, mm -hmm. just like Sackville, middle Sackville kind of thing, mm -hmm. and was the opera. So on New Year's Eve, with my, my brother came down, his wife came down, my kids were there, and a babysitter came with them. Uh, he came and spent New Year's Eve with me, with his assistant, and brought food and drinks over and spent New Year's Eve with me in 2004. It was crazy. It just, it was crazy. And, and that's awesome that you had that experience and that he was, you know, generous. And, and it's really interesting the the fact of, you know, how he didn't want to get pictures taken. I'm, I'm sure uh, a lot of celebrities probably could, could take note about that because uh, yeah, like people can, can try to pose as uh, you know, his, his employees or people employed by him. Um, can you just, uh, just last, lastly kind of touch on when the film came out, kind of what your, what your, thoughts were about the film um was there any type of uh, premiere event that you were a part of or did you where did you watch it and and yeah that, that's that's a very big uh boxing film um what uh, my affiliation with the movie sort of ended when the boxing scenes ended so the movie wasn't they weren't finished doing all the other scenes so i think that sort of did all the boxing scenes they did other scenes back and forth mm -hmm. after that um so I don't even, I don't even remember, I remember going to the theater with my family and watching, but I don't think anybody else, there was no big uh, premiere for me or anything like that, I just went to the theater when it came out with my family, and it was very enjoyable watching it, and, and I was very happy with, because I mean, look, you look at a lot of boxing movies, and, and the credibility of the movie is usually done by how authentic the boxing scenes are, like, like Million Dollar Baby, it sucked. The movie, like that, it was so unrealistic what happened. Rocky movies, they're very entertaining, but the fight scenes very unrealistic. And and Raging Bull again with Rob Deere, great movie, black movie, uh, one of my favorite movies. But that's for entertainment. Boxing scenes weren't realistic. Uh, Russell was very passionate. He had a lot of videotapes of the fights, and he was very passionate that the the movie had the authentic part about as best we can about this boxing scenes to be realistic. And I think that the choreographer for the movie was a bit of an asshole. I won't say his name, but uh, he didn't like me either. He saw me being a wedge between him and Russell Coe. Russell Coe and I were sort of buddy-buddy. We trained together. We ate together. We did different things. So he wanted to be in that spot. And he was put in his place probably the first or second day that he came down. This is not your job. Your job is choreography. And then, so then some of the, some of the people in the movie came to Australia to train. So I was involved with them training, 
but I was not involved in the choreography until we got to Toronto when they did the first fight scene where Russell Crowe breaks his hand, where I'm actually in the corner for that fight. Russell said at the training center in Toronto, I to the to the stunt coordinator, show me what the first scene looks like. And he had Russell's stunt double, uh, Stuart Clark, who's the stunt double, come in to do, he, he sort of was an amazing person. He had to learn every fight scene with everybody to do it for Russell. So when it was all the stunt doubles, all the people that were to the other actors doing it, he was doing it first. So Russell then had to learn it from him. It was insane, the guy had to learn every fight. And uh, so he went in the ring and the choreography was way too karate-like, way too martial arts, like way too good. And Russell's like, how is the guy getting disqualified doing all that stuff? That's not going to happen. Like, that's bullshit. Like, what the fuck's going on? He lost his shit on the guy. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, wow, this is great. The guy's getting shit on I didn't like the guy either, right? So Russell's losing his shit on this guy in front of everybody. And then he says, Wayne, do you know what I want? I said, yes. Can you show me? So I got in the ring and got one of the other actors, who was a, who, which is Troy Ross, who actually fought in the... Uh, 1996 and 2000 Olympic Games for Canada, tremendous fighter. Uh, he was he was the fighter in that first scene. So I went in the ring with him and then showed him what it would look like if for a fighter to get do the things that a fighter would do to get disqualified. And then I did it, and Russell goes, That's amazing. That's exactly what you want. Can you do that again in five minutes when Ron Howard comes down? I said, No problem. So I did it again. Then Russell uh, Russell goes, Man, that's great. I want you to help with some of the choreography for some of the other fights, and I'm going to give you a part in the movie. I said, "Sweet, wow. yeah." It was. It was like, again, it was like, it was like, I, I, I live in. I was living in Beaver Bank, Nova Scotia, the middle of nowhere, looking out my window with my life falling to pieces, and all of a sudden this happens. My my life is a total roller coaster. I got great things happen to me, and I have just pure bullshit things happen to me as well. But that and was obviously a high point. It was. It was. It was just. Again, it was amazing. And I guess that's also somewhat indicative of the sport of boxing because, you know, when we win, it's some of the highest of the highs. And when we lose, it's the lowest of the lows. And, you know, life has its, its moments where things are good, sometimes they're bad. But overall, it's all about triumphing it. And certainly when we had, we, we've had this discussion, you've had the opportunity of not only having a father uh, that's really part of the, of the sport, and then you, of course, continuing the 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 name and uh and doing going through the olympics he had the opportunity of meeting some of the the biggest names in boxing i mean this has been this has been amazing having this talk with you i mean we've touched on so many bases and um you know we're getting we're getting close to time so uh usually what i do is i, I give this an opportunity to um just kind of share some things that are upcoming, but we, we already kind of touched this on the, at the beginning. So April 2nd, we're going to have the brawl for it all. Um, it's going to be in spry field, correct. As yeah, the Lions Hall. Lions. And that's again, the headline by Justin Chambers, the, the fighting barber versus Jay Rodriguez from tribal boxing. And then you said it was the 20, um, your, the, no, the, the, the April. Uh, sorry, but the the fight with in Mexico with uh, Sierra. Oh yeah, we're it's the twenty sixth and twenty seventh of March. We're leaving on the twenty third. Come back on the 29th. Okay, so you're gonna bring some hardware home. It's gonna be an awesome experience. I'm so excited for you guys going out there representing. You know everybody here on on the world stage. Um, 
thank you so much for coming on, Wayne, you know, sharing, sharing your experience, sharing some really beautiful stories. Um, you know, like I said, from the beginning, when, when you think about boxing in Nova Scotia, the Gordon name is the biggest name uh, when it comes to, you know, boxing in Nova Scotia, of course, your father, you, and, and, and I'm so excited that, uh, you know, it's still staying alive and everybody's, you know, competing and getting back into to competitions more regularly. I, I am, look, I am honored to be here. I, I, I'm very humbled by the sport of boxing. I'm, I'm flattered by what you say about me. Um, I, I look, I enjoy going to the gym. I'll just tell you one more story before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. You re- I can tell a lot more stories, but, but, uh, but I'll tell you one more story is that, is that the day that my, my father died, um, I was standing in the hospital with my brother, looking at my, my, my father as he passed away. And my brother said, look, Wayne, we're, we're getting, the family's getting together at my house tonight at around six o'clock. What time are you going to come over? And I said, I got the gym tonight. And he said, what? He said, you're not coming to spend time with your family after your father passed away? And I said, I am. The gym is my family. Because I see people in my, and what my father did for boxing and what he put into the kids. I spent so much time with the kids in the gym that I spent way more time with them than I was with other family members. And, you know, it, it has been my family. And, and, and boxing is kind of like an addiction because Lord knows nobody's, nobody's making money at it. And it definitely, you look at anybody that's successful in boxing, it costs them money to do it because they have to get competitions for the kids. They have to, all this money, all this stuff doesn't come free. And I sort of look at boxing, it's like a sick addiction. Because you just, you just can't walk away. As much as Boxing Canada and even people in Nova Scotia have done things to me to make me want to quit, it just motivates me to want to be better. I I I totally agree, and and it was really touching that you shared that because obviously you know, um, boxing is is a, a community, and and more than that, it's it's a family, especially the gym. You know, and and I'm glad that that you were able to continue again with with uh, the name and and with Citadel because Citadel has been around for a long time. Fifty Citadel. years this year. Fifty years this okay. year. Okay. Wow, fifty years. That's that's amazing. Um, and and yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to have our anniversary show in June, so stay tuned for that. We're trying to have okay. a big show in June. We'd like all of our alumni to show up and. It, it, it should be big. That's that's awesome. June June's not too far either. So that's that's no. something to look forward to, everybody. Hey Wayne, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, I really appreciate you having me. Hope you have a good rest of your day. I imagine you have to go to the gym pretty soon, eh? Yeah, I got like another hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your day. And, and, and thank you so much, Stephanie, too, for helping uh, hook everything up and everything like that. I really appreciate hey, it. Hey, come out to the gym sometime, meet some of these kids, and then you'll be impressed. Awesome. I'll definitely do that. Uh, take care. Have a good right. day. Stay safe. All right. Thank you. Thank All right. you. All right, bye. And I hope you enjoyed that podcast. That was certainly interesting. Uh, we learned a lot. Um, so we learned some... Uh, information about the upcoming cards, you know, April 2nd, uh, Spryfield, the Lions Hall. Uh, we also talked about Sierra going to Mexico fairly soon. 
Um, and we touched on a lot of bases. So we touched on obviously the history of his father, Taylor, and talking about his amateur career and then going into the pros. Talking about Angelo Dundee, Muhammad Ali, getting the opportunity to train uh, Russell Crowe in Cinderella Man. Um, apart from everything else that we talked about, we had a really interesting conversation. And I hope everybody enjoyed it today. Um, and as always, guys, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe if you're if you're watching it on YouTube. And then if you're listening to it, um, make sure that you're also um, subscribing to the podcast. So that way, when a new podcast comes out on whatever platform you choose, uh, you'll be the first to listen. And as always, whatever time you're listening to this podcast, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Stay safe as uh, as always, and I'll see you on the flip side. Take care.